Good morning. Good morning. So my name's Jamie. If you have not yet met me, I'm the one you need to come and see for chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Put in your orders fourth week. Only if you filled out all four. <laughs> I count it as an honour and a privilege to be able to be invited to share with you this morning. And it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for me this morning because I'm going to be sharing on a word that makes us squirm, I think, a little bit. And that's the word vulnerability, when we get vulnerable. Because um, the, the statement that God has been inviting us into, that Phil has been sharing with us, is that vulnerability is the new way of living. And I'm not really sure if I wanted to live like that when it first came out. Because God is inviting us into that place, I have to be really serious about counting the cost. What does that look like? Jesus challenged his disciples in Luke 14 about the cost of being his disciples, to weigh that up before you go on a journey, because Christ didn't want you to fall away halfway through because you haven't actually counted the cost of what that was going to look like. See, I would say, for me personally, that following Jesus is actually harder than not following Jesus. And if I'm not following God, I'm essentially saying to myself that I am God, that it's all about me. No, no accountability, no consequences. I just get to live my life. But there's a greater cost to that, that we know of when choosing not to follow him. See, the challenge is that God exists whether you follow him or not. And one day we're all going to stand before him and give an account for our lives and and, and when you follow Christ, you get to receive all that he's got for you, not just afterlife, but now. And, um, and so I choose to surrender my life to Christ. I choose that. And it's not always easy, but what I receive in return is absolutely amazing. Look, think about salvation. Think about eternity with God. Think about the freedom from sin and pain and hurt. And God offers that to us now. God says there's no, when you put your life in Christ, there's no longer shame and condemnation in Christ Jesus. We can walk freedom and free now. And, and so while the journey is difficult because God in his ultimate wisdom and knowledge will always challenge you to a greater level of maturity. He always calls you to a better way of living. And so there are times when in his wisdom he will prompt you to, to, uh, to address something. Not because he wants to bring healing. He wants to bring wholeness. He wants to bring maturity. He wants to, to mold us more like Christ. And that's not always easy. So when we had to look at this, this phrase that vulnerability is a new way of living, I had to seriously weigh that up because it's a new way. It's not going to dabble in it for a little while and then go back to my old ways. And I had to really think about what that looked like. Because I don't like the word vulnerability from my understanding and viewpoint. Because like the dictionary says that vulnerability is a state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed either physically or emotionally. Oh yeah, sign me up. <laughs> Can't wait. No, not at all. That, but God is inviting us into it. And we think about that because we see vulnerability in nature all the time. You see in the wildlife, you see young animals, sick animals, old animals they isolate themselves a little bit and they become more vulnerable and so they're more open to be attacked. And we do that as, as well as people. When we're hurting and when we're in a weaker state, we, we tend to withdraw, which opens ourselves up for a bit more of an opportunity for our enemy to, to come at us. You know, John 10.10 10 says the enemy comes to kill and rob and steal, destroy. 
That's his main purpose. But God's not inviting us into that space of vulnerability. He's asking us to be vulnerable with him. He's asking us to allow our weakness to shine so that his strength can come in, that we can trust him in our weak spots, we can trust him with our hurting and be vulnerable and open to him. He's not out to harm us, you know. His part in John 10, 10 says that he's come to give us life and life to the full. And I'm excited about that. You know, we've got to trust him with all our areas of our lives. What he does is he turns that area of weakness into our area of witness. You know, when we're, when we're weak and it's his strength that comes through, it's his shine, it's his name that gets lifted up. If you look at all, so many great preachers and great testimonies, their weakest spot has become their platform because they've allowed God to come in and deal with so many issues and, and, and take them through a season of discomfort and pain. And, and because of their low point and their vulnerability to God, they've shined and it's been their platform to say, look what Jesus has done in my life. And that's so, many pow- so powerful. And what I've had to realize is that my journey is also not about just me. God uses my journey in order to shine his light to others. And there's no, other, there's no better guide for someone in the middle of in a tough spot than someone who's been through it on the other side saying, hey, follow me, I can get you through, I can stand with you, I can support you. You know, vulnerability is, is powerful. It's not, a, it's not a weakness, but it's a strength. Your victory will come in your vulnerability. It's a word that was being brought this morning. It's a word I heard of, uh, a week or so ago traveling with Phil, and it was like, yeah, that's exactly right. The moments of victory in my life is when I've surrendered and become vulnerable and allowed God to come in. So Phil and I have been were speaking about this message a little while ago, and he's asked me to be a little bit more vulnerable and sharing a, a part of my testimony. Um, and, and so I, I wrestled with that for a little while, and I also had to make sure I asked permission from my wife. Because when you expose yourself and you open yourself up, it's not just me in the story. You know? So I had to ask permission for Chance because she also exposes herself without actually having to stand up here. <laughs> so I've got the challenge, and as you know, a lot of you know me that I wear my emotions on my sleeve, so I'm fully aware that these might come into play more than once. But we'll be brave. Amen? Awesome. So I'm going to share with you about Charlie. Charlie's our youngest daughter, our number eight. <laughs> yeah, you did hear me correctly, our number eight. Um, she was definitely not part of our plans. Now, you have to hear me here. When I say that, I'm not saying she wasn't an accident and she wasn't not wanted. Yeah, that's right. right. She just wasn't part of our plans. Yeah, right. You know, but what I love about God is he knows what's best for us, even when... We don't. He knows what's best for us even if we haven't asked for it. And he also knows what's best for us even if we are asking not for it. Yeah, I don't want that. Yeah, well, actually, I know it's better for you, so... He does that. So I'm going to share with you about the journey of Charlie, but it actually starts with the journey of Frankie. Frankie is number seven. Frankie was our last, according to our plans, according to my desires and... And stuff, and I've shared the story before that when Shani and I first got married, we decided that you know we're going to have you know a nice family and that sort of stuff. And I wanted three kids, and Shani wanted four, and 
So when number seven came along, I thought that was God's funny way of doing math. Um, and that was the seal. That was like, for me, a full stop. I even went and brought a necklace for Shani uh, to celebrate the last time that she breastfed Frankie because it it's massive for her. She'd been doing it for 10 years. And so for me, it was a symbol of, a, of, an, end of, a, of an end of a journey, an end of a season, and we celebrated that. Um, and then I started... If you fast forward a few years, I started living that dream. I know what it's like to be out of the nappy season. Woohoo! It was awesome. I was, I was loving it. I could see myself and my wife driving down the highway in a convertible, hair blowing, her hair blowing in the wind, two seats. The kids are, who cares? They're old enough to look after themselves, and I am, woohoo, freedom! Yes! I come home from work one day, and Shani says, Honey, we need to have a chat. I've seen that look on her face seven times before. <laughs> that look of fear, anxious, joy, excitement. I stand there and, and she says, we need to have a chat. And I just look at her and said, you're joking. <laughs> that was my response. And she said, no, no. Um, so we embrace and say congratulations. And I'm hugging her and saying, oh, that is awesome. Give me back the necklace. This is... <laughs> This is fantastic, you know. Um, but at the same time, I'm hugging her, looking at God, going, my dream just went up in smoke. I'm back in the van. <laughs> Nappies, sleep's gone. I'm back there. Confused. Okay, but I've learned to put my trust in God, and if God said this is what he wants, then it's got to be the best. I've realized that. And so we are celebrating that. We go along a couple of months in the journey and we haven't even told our children. It's a little game we like to play. <laughs> when you have seven, you get to play a few games. It's quite good. But we tell one or two couples because, you know, we've got to release it somewhere and we, we tell it to people who we trust to keep it a confidence and to pray with us and support us and, and that sort of stuff. And we do that for a reason because people say stupid things. They really do. I remember when Jesse was born. My goodness, don't get confused here. He's number five. Shani came up to the front here to give the notice that, yay, we were having another one. We were excited. I was standing at the back, right beside another lady. I can say this story because she's not here. <laughs> I didn't ask for her permission. But she doesn't actually realize I know. But I was standing right next to her, and her comment was, oh, my gosh, that's disgusting. How inappropriate. What a poor decision. Oh my goodness, that is, that is horrible. I was standing right there. I was like, hello, I'm the father. <laughs> you know? And I, I started to think, why do people celebrate one and two? It's a great blessing, yay, congratulations. But what's the difference between six or seven or eight? They're still a great blessing from God. Because people don't understand and they put their opinions on your promises or your blessings. You see, you can't, and what they don't realize is that when you do that, you're actually saying God doesn't know what he's doing. Wow. We need to be careful of how we open our mouth and speak yeah. into someone else's blessings or promises. You might not understand it, but shut your mouth. <laughs> we get stupid conversations and it gets worse when you have more. Trust me, we've had all the TV conversations and all those other things that come with it. 
So we're carrying along. We haven't told our children. We haven't told anything. And then Shani starts to bleed. And we lose the baby. And as a husband, incredibly hard place to stand. Two months, Shani's feeling the baby. We're excited about it. It's a promise. We're, we're stoked. And then gone. I have no answers. And as a husband, I feel like it's my job to be supportive. To be able to tell her what's, it's going to be okay. And I feel a little bit guilty because I know she's grieving more than me. But she's got such a deeper connection as a mother at that stage. And I'm lost, and I don't know what to do. And in my emotion, it turns to anger, and it turns to frustration, it turns to confusion, and I turn to God, and I have a pretty heated conversation with him. And to say a conversation's probably a little bit one-sided, because he didn't say much. <laughs> it didn't really give him the chance to talk. And I know that in that space that uh, it's just raw emotion and God's okay with that. But I need to tell you, when you're in that space, God is still holy. God is still a God of righteousness. And we need to also, I needed to also make sure that I, after my dump on him, and I wasn't blaming him, I was just lost, that I also made sure that I still had respect and honour and, and put that back with God because he's still holy. It doesn't mean I can get away and talk to him however I want to. And that's, we've got to remember that. Um, I think that's incredibly important. So months go by and as you know, you, you go through that journey of grief and um, everything seems to turn back to normal and I start to dream again. My car is back. The kids are gone. Um, I'm on that open road again. <laughs> and I come home from work one day. And Shani says, we need to chat. <laughs> I'm not so happy this time. I'm angry. Because I've seen that look again now eight times. And, um, and I'm angry because I'm looking... And, and yes, I, I congratulate her and celebrate her because she's just as lost and confused as I am. What happened? Why? Why did we have to endure that? What's the difference? Why not? I, I don't have an answer. And I'm confused and I'm hurting and I'm, and I'm struggling with it. And I go to my trusted couples who partner with us in prayer and we pray. And it's a blessing to have those people in your life, right? But now fear comes into the situation. Because we get close to two months, your thought goes to that area of, of loss. And what, you have to, what I've had to realise and what I, I trust that you realise that just because fear comes doesn't mean you have to partner with it. So good. Right? Good you pray against it. You fight it. You declare life. You speak oh, God's yeah. promises in your yes. life. You chase after the things that God's got to you. And when you've suffered, you chase a little bit harder. I guarantee you, you chase a little bit harder. We didn't partner with fear. 
we partnered with Promise. Shani goes to full term and then here comes the challenge. She endures the most horrendous labour that I've ever seen or heard of and stuff. We were in the hospital and we had raced. Did we go there by ambulance? Oh, no, I raced her. I didn't trust the ambulance to get there fast enough. Um, she has experienced what she would determine as the pain in her back's about to snap her spine in half. That's the level of discomfort she's under. And when you're in that much pain in a hospital room, you do not care about who's around you, what has been said, and what they're doing. You just let it all out. And I could see the discomfort and the pain that she was under. And as a husband, what do you do? <laughs> I'm still lost. I'm trying to be supportive. I'm trying to be encouraging, but I'm, I'm still lost. They get all the doctors and um, anaesthetists in and, and they start performing an epidural to take pain away because that helps. Uh, they fail on a number of occasions and they're struggling to get it in. And Shani's sitting on the edge of the bed and I'm holding her hands and everybody else is busy behind her and she looks at me and she says, I'm going to die. I'm about to die. And I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, you'll be right. I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do. I don't know how serious it was. And, and I said, okay, you'll be right. And she looks at me and squeezes my hands a little bit harder and she said, no, I'm serious. I can't take this anymore. This is, I'm about to die. And she said, I'm okay with that because I know where I'm going. And I'm like looking at the doctors and nurses thinking, do you actually know what's going on here? Do you realise the severity of it? And I'm trying to be strong as a husband, holding hands and freaking out. And I'm looking at her and she goes, I don't know. And she looks at me and says, do you promise to look after my children? I said, yeah, of course, you're not going to. You'll be all right, you're okay. And she squeezes my hand and says, no, you promise. I said, I promise. And she gives up. <laughs> She's not responsive. They're still working away on her back. And I, I picture it too when Christ was on the cross and he gave up his spirit and he just hung. The severity of what she went through and what she was going through was too much and she fought as much as she could and then she let go. And it was hard because she was comfortable with that. She knew where she was going. And yet I was lost because I was in all that space. This happens in a matter of short space of time. I'm thinking, how the heck am I going to do this? You can't leave me. And I'm challenged and I'm broken, trying to be brave and strong and push the doctors and nurses around to tell them to hurry up. And I'm lost. And eventually we get her to lie down and she's still a little bit non-responsive. And I'm talking no movement. No, nothing. There's no pain. She's let go of the pain. It doesn't even affect her anymore. That's how far she's let go. Eventually, they, they get it right, and the, the epidural works, and she starts to come around. And, and we race in for an emergency C-section, and they pull out this giant of a baby through the sunroof. That's what we tell our kids. I mean, it's a caesarean. comes through the sunroof. It's, you know, it's 10 pound 13, um, constantly pushing on the back. And the doctors and stuff had a lot of trouble getting bubs out. And I'm standing there and they give it to me and, and 
Shani's just out to it and getting worked on and stuff, and I'm so in love with the gift, but so confused. What do you do? God, what's this all been about? And I am struggling, and I remember that um, God always has a plan and a purpose, and and there's in our weakness when his strength comes, I know that one day it'll be a testimony. Funny, that. Um, but I also recognize, and, and we know that that's not the end of the journey. We're holding a promise. So good. That's not the end of the story. Shani still has massive difficulties with her spine. It still feels like there's needles in her back all the time. You know, and the Israelite people, when they crossed into the promised land, they still had battles. They still had things that they had to fight. The, the journey, as uncomfortable and long and tedious as it was, it, they held on to the promise, but the journey's not over. You know? And so, sorry, that was really gross. Um, and so, when Phil asked me to be vulnerable and I'm sharing the story, I also remember the scripture of that Shumanite woman that um, Elisha comes and and is involved with in 2 Kings chapter 4, if you wanted to turn there, uh, verses 8 through to 36. We'll have a look at that this morning. Because I believe through her story and through our story, God wants to speak to us about what do you do? What can we do when we're in the midst of a storm and we've got no answers and it's hurting and it's hard? 2 Kings verse Chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. I'll just skim through a part of it. Basically here, it tells you that Elisha went to Shuman and he meets this well-to-do woman. She's rich. She has everything that she needs. Um, she recognizes Elijah as a, as a godly man and invites him in to a home for meals. And then she says to her husband, this is the man of God. We need to build that extra room on top of our house so that whenever he comes, he, he has a place to stay and a place to, you know, to be fed and to, to rest. And I look at those first couple of verses and God says to me, that's about generosity. Generosity is, is the key in that. Then we look at verses 11 through to 14. And Elijah, because of her generosity and her openness, wants to do something for her in return. And he asks her, hey, can I put a good word in for you for the king? You know, and she's, she declines that because she's content with what she has. She's not chasing more. But she's content, and Elijah then looks to his uh, servant Gehazi and, and says to him, what can we do? And he says, well, she doesn't have a son. And in verse 11, it says, he, he told his servant, oh, whoops, wrong over here. He said to the servant Gehazi, call the Shumanite woman in. So he called her and stood before her and said, what can I do? And talked about the whole kingdom things. And then in verse 14, he asked Gehazi, and she says she has no son. Then Elijah said to her, call her in. So he called her in, and she stood in the doorway. And about this time, next year, Elijah said, you will hold a son in your arms. What that says to me, that piece of scripture, that piece of scripture is that uh, when you're generous towards God, God will shine his favor and attraction onto you. Now Elisha is saying, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And her greatest desire is to have a son. Look at her response in verse 15. 
oh, sorry, yeah, 15 onwards. Then Elijah called her in, this time next year you will have a son. Her response is, no, my Lord. She objected, objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. There's no hope anymore. How many times has she been chasing that dream or desire and it's never come to pass? She has, no, don't do that to me. The, the, the pressure of that on me is too much. What has she been spoken over her for years? What has her been, ex- this is her greatest desire and, and God and Elisha is saying to her, I want to, God wants to bless you with this, but she's saying, no, I don't, it's too much if it doesn't come true. Broken dreams. Shattered promises. But the good thing is, in verse 17, the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. The child grew up, and one day he went to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother, and after, after the servant had left, lifted him up, and carried him to his mother. The boy sat on her lap until noon, and he died. What do you do when your promise dies? What do you do when you lost your dream job that you thought this was it? What do you do when you, your dreams shatter and you hold them in your hands and think, what do I do with that? I know what that's like. I'm sure a lot of you do too. You've had dreams and promises and it felt like it's died. I love what her response was. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. (laughs) The reason I love that response is she took him and laid him to the closest connection she had with God. She took what was broken, she took her dead son and, and put it to the closest place that she had a connection with God. She took it to God. And then she went out to her husband and asked her husband in verse 22. She called her husband and said, please send me out one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel, which is about a 15-mile journey, by the way. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look, there's the Shumanite. Run to her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And he did that, and, and she said, yeah, everything is all right. What? <laughs> she has just shut the door on her dead son. God's told me in this, and through my experience, you've got to be very careful of who you talk to. Because remember, people say stupid things. You look at Gehazi's response a little bit just down the track. When she gets to the man of God and falls out his feet, what does he do? He tries to push her out of the road. People respond to things that they don't understand. People judge our outside behaviours without really knowing what's gone on the inside. And we've got to be careful who we pull alongside and allow to walk alongside us. You've got to have trusted companions. 
You've got to have mentors. You've got to have people in your life that you can walk in a difficult season through who know they're not going to say dumb things and are going to support you and going to encourage you and going to keep pointing you towards the promises that God has put in your life. You can't allow people to rob steal. She didn't, by all accounts, didn't even tell her husband. She just said to him, look, I need a donkey. I've got to go see the man of God. And he's like, well, why bother? Why bother him today? And she said, it's all right. There's no mention of her even telling her husband. She didn't tell Gehazi. She went to the man of God who she knew could do something and who was, had the faith to believe in, the, in, I guess, the connection of God. Don't go to anybody and everybody and tell all your issues or your problems because they will step on your dreams. That's why I love the fact that we are launching connect groups because it calls us into relationship and we can't isolate ourselves. When you go through trouble and you go through hardship, you actually need family and community around you. And when we launch connect groups, my encouragement is you get into them. And you do family because you can't do it alone. When you stand alone, you become vulnerable in not a healthy way. Vulnerable in a life group tells you that you can trust the people around you because you walk in in relationship with them and they're there for you and there to support you. You don't have to tell everything to everyone, but you have to talk to someone. You can't be an island in isolation. That's the easiest way for you to get picked off by the enemy. We had a couple of people that rallied around us and supported us through a trialling time. Those same people also rallied around us and supported us in a time of celebration. People that are able to walk with you in all seasons and love you no matter what. We get to read the end of the story, and you can do that where Elijah goes back and does some crazy things and lies on the boy, and he comes back to life, and, and she celebrates and, and, and uh, worships God because her, her boy is raised. And I, who would not celebrate that? Who would not worship that? But what do you do in that moment when you're standing holding your broken dreams? The things that have seemingly have died on you and your favourite job. I don't know what your circumstances is. Your marriage could feel like it's dying. What do you do with that? And I want to invite the band up because we're going to lead into a little bit of time of worship and I believe God is calling for a response. But I believe that this lady and a part of my story tells us three things that God wants us and is calling us to do in our journey of being vulnerable before him. The first one you do when you've got something that's in your life and it is seemingly dying or it's broken, it's lost, you do what the lady did and you give it to God. You take it back to him. You lay it at his feet. He is the God of our promises and we sang it this morning and all his promises are yes and amen. You take it to God. I might have challenged God with my understanding they had conversations but the first place I went to in my trouble was God because there's no greater answer than God the second thing I felt quite important is you've got to tell someone you've got to have someone in your life to walk with the journey with you don't be an island vulnerability is sharing and opening yourself up to God so that in our weakness his strength can come and God uses other people to do that as well and you need to have trusted people and the third thing is worship 
Worship is your weapon. One of the greatest things that helped Shani and I through a season of tough times, and we did it in different ways and we did it together, was just to worship God. Because when you worship, you take your eyes off yourself and you put your eyes on Him. And He is the answer to every single situation that we are all facing right now. And worship brings breakthrough. Worship puts perspective when you start to worship Him. And as Phil said this morning, all else fades away. We focus on what's valuable and what's important. Because your victory will come in your vulnerability. Such a powerful statement. And God is inviting us into that space of vulnerability with Him. Not for harm, but that His glory can shine through us. Because your story is not just about you, it's about how God can reach others through you. And He will take you on a journey of freedom, of wholeness, of maturity that gives you life and life to its full. And I believe through this next song of worship, God is inviting you this morning, if you're carrying something, loss, hurt, brokenness, to bring it to God. And symbolically through our church, we often use this as an altar at the front here to bring it before God, lay it at his feet. But I want to ask that you don't do that alone. Bring someone with you. Bring someone that you can trust. You don't have to tell them what it's about, but grab their hand and they will stand with you because there is power in unity. And once you lay it at the feet of God, then you worship. You worship the Lord God with all your might because he is the answer. He is the one. He is everything. Amen. So let's stand and let's worship our God. Amen.